0: great privilege of those that are born of God whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. 1 John 3 9. 1. It has been frequently supposed that the being born of God was all one with the being justified, that the new birth and justification were only different expressions, denoting the same thing, it being certain, on the one hand, that whoever is justified is also born of God, and, on the other, that whoever is born of God is also justified, yea, that both these gifts of God are given to every believer in one and the same moment. In one point of time his sins are blotted out, and he is born again of God. 2. But though it be allowed, that justification, and the new birth are, in point of time, inseparable from each other, yet are they easily distinguished, as being not the same, but things of a widely different nature. Justification implies only a relative, the new birth a real, change. God in justifying us does something for us, in begetting us again, he does the work in us the former changes our outward relation to God, so that of enemies we become children, by the latter our inmost souls are changed, so that of sinners we become saints. The one restores us to the favor, the other to the image of God. The one is the taking away the guilt, the other the taking away the power of sin, so that although they are joined together in point of time, yet are they of wholly distinct natures. 3. The not discerning this, the not observing the wide difference there is between being justified, and being born again, has occasioned exceeding great confusion of thought in many who have treated on this subject, particularly when they have attempted to explain this great privilege of the children of God, to show how whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. 4. In order to apprehend this clearly, it may be necessary... First, to consider what is the proper meaning of that expression, whosoever is born of God, and, secondly, to inquire, in what sense he doth not commit sin? I one. First, we are to consider, what is the proper meaning of that expression, whosoever is born of God? And, in general, from all the passages of Holy Rit, where in this expression, the being born of God, occurs, we may learn that it implies not barely the being baptized, or any outward change whatever, but a vast inward change, a change wrought in the soul, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, a change in the whole manner of our existence, for, from the moment we are born of God, we live in quite another manner, than we did before, we are, as it were, in another world. 2 the ground and reason of the expression is easy to be understood. When we undergo this great change, we may, with much propriety, be said to be born again, because there is so near a resemblance between the circumstances of the natural and of the spiritual birth, so that to consider the circumstances of the natural birth is the most easy way to understand the spiritual. 3. The child which is not yet born subsists indeed by the air as does everything which has life, but feels it not, nor anything else, unless in a very dull and imperfect manner. It hears little, if at all, the organs of hearing being as yet closed up. It sees nothing, having its eyes fast shut, and being surrounded with utter darkness, There are, it may be, some faint beginnings of life, when the time of its birth draws nigh, and some motion consequent thereon, whereby it is distinguished from a mere mass of matter, but it has no senses, all these avenues of the soul are hitherto quite shut up. Of consequence, it has scarce any intercourse with this visible world, nor any knowledge, conception, or idea, of the things that occur therein. 4. The reason why he that is not yet born is wholly a stranger to the visible world, is, not, because it is afar off, it is very nigh, it surrounds him on every side, wink, but, partly, because he has not those senses, they are not yet opened in his soul, whereby alone it is possible to hold commerce with the material world, and partly, because so thick a veil is cast between, through which he can discern nothing. 5. But no sooner is the child born into the world, and he exists in a quite different manner. He now feels the air with which he is surrounded, and which pours into him from every side, as fast, as he alternately breathes it back, to sustain the flame of life, and hence brings a continual increase of strength, of motion, and of sensation, all the bodily senses being now awakened, and furnished with their proper objects. His eyes are now open to perceive the light, which, silently flowing in upon them, discovers not only itself, but an infinite variety of things, with which before he was wholly unacquainted. His ears are unclosed, and sounds Russian with endless diversity. Every sense is employed upon such objects as are peculiarly suitable to it, and by these inlets the soul, having an open intercourse with the visible world, acquires more and more knowledge of sensible things, of all the things which are under the sun. 6. So it is with him that is born of God. Before that great change is wrought, although he subsists by him, in whom all that have life live, and move, and have their being, yet he is not sensible of God, he does not feel, he has no inward consciousness of his presence. He does not perceive that divine breath of life, without which he cannot subsist a moment, nor is he sensible of any of the things of God, they make no impression upon his soul. God is continually calling to him from on high but he heareth not, his ears are shut, so that the voice of the charmer is lost to him, charm he never so wisely, he seeth not the things of the Spirit of God, the eyes of his understanding being closed, and utter darkness covering his whole soul, surrounding him on every side. It is true he may have some faint dawnings of life, some small beginnings of spiritual motion, but as yet he has no spiritual senses capable of discerning spiritual objects, consequently he discerneth not the things of the Spirit of God, he cannot know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 7. Hence he has scarce any knowledge of the invisible world, as he has scarce any intercourse with it. Not that it is afar off, no, he is in the midst of it, it encompasses him round about, The other world, as we usually term it, is not far from every one of us, it is above, and beneath, and on every side. Only the natural man discerneth it not, partly, because he has no spiritual senses, whereby alone we can discern the things of God, partly, because so thick a veil is interposed, as he knows not how to penetrate. 8. But when he is born of God, born of the Spirit, how is the manner of his existence changed? his whole soul is now sensible of God, and he can say, by sheer experience, thou art, about my bid, and about my path, I feel thee in all my ways, thou besettest me behind and before, and layest thy hand upon me the spirit or breath of God is immediately inspired, breathed into the newborn soul, and the same breath which comes from, returns to God, as it is continually received by faith, so it is continually rendered back by love, by prayer, and praise, and thanksgiving, love and praise, and prayer being the breath of every soul which is truly born of God. And by this new kind of spiritual respiration, spiritual life is not only sustained, but increased day by day, together with spiritual strength, and motion, and sensation, all the senses of the soul being now awake, and capable of discerning spiritual good and evil. 9. The eyes of his understanding are now open, and he seeth him, that is invisible, He sees what is the exceeding greatness of his power, and of his love, toward them that believe. He sees that God is merciful to him a sinner, that he is reconciled through the Son, of his love. He clearly perceives both the pardoning love of God, and all his exceeding great and precious promises. God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, hath shined, and doth shine, in his heart, to enlighten him with the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. All the darkness is now passed away, and he abides in the light of God's countenance. 10. His ears are now opened, and the voice of God no longer calls in vain. He hears and obeys the heavenly calling. He knows the voice of his shepherd. All his spiritual senses being now awakened, he has a clear intercourse with the invisible world, and hence he knows more and more of the things which before it could not enter into his heart to conceive. He now knows what the peace of God is, what is joy in the Holy Ghost, what the love of God which is shed abroad in the heart of them that believe in Him through Christ Jesus. Thus the veil being removed which before interrupted the light and voice, the knowledge and love of God, He, who is born of the Spirit, dwelling in love, dwelleth in God, and God in Him. 2. 1. Having considered the meaning of that expression, whosoever is born of God, it remains, in the second place, to inquire, in what sense he doth not commit sin. Now one who is so born of God, as hath been above described, who continually receives into his soul the breath of life from God, the gracious influence of his spirit, and continually renders it back. 1. Who thus believes, and loves, who by faith perceives the continual actings of God, upon his spirit, and by a kind of spiritual reaction returns the grace he receives, in unceasing love, and praise, and prayer, not only doth not commit sin, while he thus keepeth himself. But so long as the seed remaineth in him, he cannot sin, because he is born of God. 2. By sin, I here understand outward sin, according to the plain, common acceptation of the word, an actual, voluntary transgression of the law, of the revealed, written law of God, of any commandment of God, acknowledged to be such at the time, that it is transgressed. But whosoever is born of God, while he abideth in faith and love, and in the spirit of prayer and thanksgiving, not only doth not, but cannot, thus commit sin. So long. As he thus believeth in God through Christ, and loves Him, and is pouring out his heart before Him, he cannot voluntarily transgress any command of God, either by speaking or acting what he knows God hath forbidden, so long that seed which remaineth in him, that loving, praying, thankful faith, compels him to refrain from whatsoever he knows to be an abomination in the sight of God. 3. But here a difficulty will immediately occur, and one, that to many has appeared insuperable, and induced them to deny the plain assertion of the Apostle, and give up the privilege of the children of God. It is plain, in fact, that those whom we cannot deny to have been truly born of God, the Spirit of God having given us in His Word this infallible testimony concerning them, nevertheless, not only could, but did, commit sin, even gross, outward sin. They did transgress the plain, known laws of God, speaking or acting what they knew he had forbidden. 4. Thus David was unquestionably born of God, or ever he was anointed king over Israel. He knew in whom he had believed, he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. The Lord, saith he, is my shepherd, therefore can I lack nothing. He shall feed me in green pastures, and lead me forth beside the waters of comfort. Yea. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Psalm 23, 1. And see, He was filled with love, such, as often constrained Him to cry out, I will love Thee, O Lord, my strength, the Lord is my stony rock, and my defense, the horn also of my salvation, and my refuge. Psalm 28, 1. He was a man of prayer, pouring out his soul before God, in all circumstances of life, and abundant in praises and thanksgiving. Thy praise, saith he, shall thee ever in my mouth. Psalm 34 1, Smile, thou art my God, and I will thank thee, thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Psalm 118 28. And yet such a child of God could, and did commit sin, yea, the horrid sins of adultery and murder. 5. And even after the Holy Ghost was more largely given, after life and immortality were brought to light by the gospel we want not in of the same melancholy kind, which were also doubtless written for our instruction. Thus he who, probably from his selling all that he had, and bringing in the price for the relief of his poor brethren, was by the apostles themselves surnamed Barnabas, that is, the son of Consolation, Acts 4:36, 37, Wink, who was so honored at Antioch as to be selected with Saul, out of all the disciples to carry their relief unto the brethren in Judea, Acts 11 30. Wink, the Sparnabas, who, at his return from Judea, was, by the peculiar direction of the Holy Ghost, solemnly separated from the other prophets and teachers, for the work whereunto God had called him, Acts 13 1-4, even to accompany the great apostle, among the gentles, and to be his fellow laborer, in every place, nevertheless, was afterwards so sharp, Acts 15 35-39, in his contention with St. Paul because he thought it not good to take with them John, in his visiting the brethren a second time, who had departed from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. That he himself also departed from the work, that he took John, and sailed unto Cyprus, Acts 15:39. Wink, forsaking him to whom he had been in so immediate a manner joined by the Holy Ghost. 6. An instance more astonishing than both these is given by St. Paul, in his epistle to the Galatians. When Peter, the aged, the zealous, the first of the apostles, one of the three most highly favored by his Lord, was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the gentles the heathens converted to the Christian faith, as having been peculiarly taught of God, that he should not call any man common or unclean. Acts 28. But, when they were come, he separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter, before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the gentles, not regarding the ceremonial law of Moses, why compellest thou the gentles to live as do the Jews? Gal 2 11, and see, here is also plain, undeniable sin committed by one, who was undoubtedly born of God. But how can this be reconciled with the assertion of St. John, if taken in the obvious literal meaning, that whosoever is born of God, doth not commit sin? 7. I answer, what has been long observed is this, so long. As he that is born of God keepeth himself, which he is able to do, by the grace of God, the wicked one toucheth him not but, if he keepeth not himself, if he abide not in the faith, he may commit sin even, as another man. It is easy therefore to understand how any of these children of God might be moved from his own steadfastness, and yet the great truth of God, declared by the Apostle, remain steadfast and unshaken. He did not keep himself, by that grace of God which was sufficient for him. He fell, step by step, first, into negative, inwards sin, not stirring up the gift of God which was in him, not watching unto prayer, not pressing unto the mark of the prize of his high calling then, into positive inwards sin, inclining to wickedness with his heart, giving way, to some evil desire or temper. Next, he lost his faith, his sight of a pardoning God and consequently has love of God, and, being then weak, and like another man, he was capable of committing even outwards sin. 8. To explain this by a particular instance, David was born of God, and saw God by faith. He loved God in sincerity. He could truly say, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth, neither person nor thing, that I desire in comparison of thee. But still, there remained in his heart that corruption of nature, which is the seed of all evil. He was walking upon the roof of his house to Sam, eleven two, probably praising the God whom his soul loved. When he looked down and saw Bathsheba, he felt a temptation, a thought which tended to evil. The Spirit of God did not fail to convince him of this. He doubtless heard and knew the warning voice, but he yielded in some measure to the thought, and the temptation began to prevail over him. Hereby his spirit was sullied, he saw God still, but it was more dimly than before. He loved God still, but not in the same degree, not with the same strength and ardor of affection. Yet God checked him again, though his spirit was grieved, and his voice, though fainter and fainter, still whispered, Sin lieth, at the door, Look unto me, and be thou saved. But he would not hear, he looked again, not unto God, but unto the forbidden object, till nature was superior to grace, and kindled lust in his soul. The eye of his mind was now closed again, and God vanished out of his sight. Faith, the divine, supernatural intercourse with God, and the love of God, ceased together, he then rushed on, as a horse into the battle, and knowingly committed the outward sin. 9. You see the unquestionable progress from grace to sin, thus it goes on, from step to step. 1. The divine seed of loving, conquering faith, remains in him, that is born of God. He keepeth himself, by the grace of God, and cannot commit sin. 2. A temptation arises, whether from the world, the flesh, or the devil, it matters not. 3. The Spirit of God gives him warning that sin is near, and bids him more abundantly watch unto prayer. 4. He gives way, in some degree, to the temptation, which now begins to grow pleasing to him. 5. The Holy Spirit is grieved, his faith is weakened, and his love of God grows cold. 6. The Spirit reproves him more sharply, and saith, This is the way, walk thou in it. 7. He turns away from the painful voice of God, and listens to the pleasing voice of the tempter. 8. Evil desire begins, and spreads in his soul, till faith and love vanish away, he is then capable of committing outward sin, the power of the Lord being departed from him. To explain this by another instance, the Apostle Peter was full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and hereby keeping himself, he had a conscience void of offense toward God, and toward man walking thus in simplicity, and godly sincerity, before that certain came from James, he did eat with the gentles, knowing that what God had cleansed was not common or unclean. But when they were come, a temptation arose in his heart, to fear those of the circumcision, the Jewish converts, who were zealous for circumcision, and the other rites of the Mosaic law, and regard the favor and praise of these men, more than the praise of God. He was warned by the Spirit that sin was near, Nevertheless, he yielded to it in some degree, even to sinful fear of man, and his faith and love were proportionably weakened. God reproved him again for giving place to the devil. Yet he would not hearken to the voice of his shepherd, but gave himself up to that slavish fear, and thereby quenched the spirit. Then God disappeared, and, faith and love being extinct, he committed the outward sin, Walking not uprightly, not according to the truth of the gospel, he separated himself from his Christian brethren, and by his evil example, if not advice also, compelled even the gentles to live after the manner of the Jews, to entangle themselves again with that yoke of bondage from which Christ had set them free. Thus it is unquestionably true, that he, who is born of God, keeping himself but not, cannot commit sin, and yet, if he keepeth not himself, he may commit all manner of sin with greediness. 3. 1. From the preceding considerations we may learn, first, to give a clear and incontestable answer to a question which has frequently perplexed many who were sincere of heart. Does sin proceed, or follow the loss of faith? Does a child of God first commit sin, and thereby lose his faith? Or does he lose his faith first, before he can commit sin? I answer, some sin of omission, at least, must necessarily precede the loss of faith, some inward sin, but the loss of faith must precede the committing outward sin. The more any believer examines his own heart, the more will he be convinced of this, that faith working by love excludes both inward and outward sin from a soul watching unto prayer, that nevertheless we are even then liable to temptation, particularly to the sin that did easily beset us, that if the loving eye of the soul be steadily fixed on God. The temptation soon vanishes away, but if not, if we are exelkamenoi, as the apostle James speaks, James one fourteen, drawn out of God by our own desire, and oi, caught by the bait of present or promised pleasure, then that desire conceived in us brings forth sin, and having by that inward sin destroyed our faith, it casts us headlong into the snare of the devil, so that we may commit any outward sin whatever. Two. From what has been said, we may learn, secondly, what the life of God, in the soul of a believer is, wherein it properly consists, and what is immediately, and necessarily implied therein. It immediately, and necessarily implies the continual inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, God's breathing, into the soul, and the soul's breathing back what it first receives from God. A continual action of God, upon a soul, and a reaction of the soul upon God an unceasing presence of God, the loving, pardoning God, manifested to the heart, and perceived by faith, and an unceasing return of love, praise, and prayer, offering up all the thoughts of our hearts, all the words of our tongues, all the works of our hands, all our body, soul, and spirit, to be a holy sacrifice, acceptable unto God in Christ Jesus. 3. And hence we may, thirdly, infer the absolute necessity of this reaction of the soul, whatsoever it be called, in order to the continuance of the divine life therein. For it plainly appears, God does not continue to act upon the soul, unless the soul reacts upon God. He prevents us indeed with the blessings of His goodness. He first loves us, and manifests Himself unto us while we are yet afar off, He calls us to Himself, and shines upon our hearts. But if we do not then love Him, who first loved us, if we will not hearken to His voice, if we turn our eye away from Him, and will not attend to the light which He pours upon us, His Spirit will not always strive, He will gradually withdraw, and leave us to the darkness of our own hearts. He will not continue to breathe into our soul, unless our soul breathes toward Him again, unless our love, and prayer, and thanksgiving return to Him, a sacrifice wherewith He is well pleased. 4. Let us learn, lastly, to follow that direction of the great Apostle, be not high-minded, but fear. Let us fear sin, more than death or hell. Let us have a jealous, though not painful, fear, lest we should lean to our own deceitful hearts. Let him that standeth take heed, lest he fall. Even he who now standeth fast in the grace of God, in the faith that overcometh the world, may nevertheless fall into inward sin, and thereby make shipwreck of his faith. And how easily then will outward sin regain its dominion over him. Ow, therefore, O man of God. Watch always, that thou mayest always hear the voice of God. Watch, that thou mayest pray without ceasing, at all times, and in all places, pouring out thy heart before him. So shalt thou always believe, and always love, and never commit sin. Justification by faith to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Romans 4.5. 1. How a sinner may be justified before God, the Lord and Judge, of all, is a question of no common importance to every child of man. It contains the foundation of all our hope, inasmuch as while we are at enmity with God, there can be no true peace, no solid joy, either in time or in eternity. What peace can there be? While our own heart condemns us, and much more, he, that is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. What solid joy, either in this world, or that to come, while the wrath of God abideth, on us. 2. And yet how little hath this important question been understood? What confused notions have many had concerning it? Indeed, not only confused, but often utterly false, contrary to the truth, as light to darkness. Notions absolutely inconsistent with the oracles of God, and with the whole analogy of faith, and hence during concerning the very foundation, they could not possibly build thereon at least not gold, silver, or precious stones, which would endure once tried, as by fire, but only hay and stubble, neither acceptable to God nor profitable to man three in order to justice, in far, as in me lies, to the vast importance of the subject, to save those that seek the truth and sincerity from vain jangling and strife of words, to clear the confusedness of thought into which so many have already been led thereby, and to give them true and just conceptions of this great mystery of godliness, I shall endeavor to show, first, what is the general ground of this whole doctrine of justification? Secondly, what justification is? Thirdly who they are that are justified. And, fourthly, on what terms they are justified. I I am, first, to show, what is the general ground of this whole doctrine of justification. 1. In the image of God was man made, holy, as he, that created him is holy, merciful, as the author, of all is merciful, perfect as his Father in heaven is perfect. As God is love, so man, dwelling in love, dwelt in God, and God, in him, God made him to be an image of his own eternity, an incorruptible picture of a God of glory. He was accordingly pure, as God is pure, from every spot of sin. He knew not evil in any kind or degree, but was inwardly, and outwardly sinless, and undefiled. He loved the Lord his God, with all his heart, and with all his mind, and soul, and strength. 2. To man thus upright and perfect, God gave a perfect law, to which he required full and perfect obedience. He required full obedience in every point, and this to be performed without any intermission, from the moment man became a living soul, till the time of his trial should be ended. No allowance was made for any falling short, as, indeed, there was no need of any, man being altogether equal to the task assigned, and thoroughly furnished for every good word and work. 3. To the entire law of love which was written in his heart, against which, perhaps, he could not sin directly, it seemed good to the sovereign wisdom of God, to superadd one positive law, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree that groweth, in the midst of the garden, annexing that penalty thereto, in the day, that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Four. Such, then, was the state of man in paradise. By the free, unmerited love of God, he was holy and happy, he knew, loved, enjoyed God, which is, in substance, life everlasting. And in this life of love, he was to continue forever, if he continued to obey God in all things, but if he disobeyed him in any, he was to forfeit all. In that day, said God, Thou shalt surely die. 5. Men did disobey God. He ate of the tree, of which God commanded him, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. And in that day he was condemned by the righteous judgment of God. Then also the sentence whereof he was warned before, began to take place upon him. For the moment he tasted that fruit, he died. His soul died, was separated from God, separate from whom the soul has no more life, and the body has one separate from the soul. His body, likewise, became corruptible and mortal, so that death then took hold on this also. And being already dead in spirit, dead to God, dead in sin, he hastened on to death everlasting, to the destruction both of body and soul, in a fire never to be quenched. 6. Thus by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, as being contained in him, who was the common father and representative of us all. Thus, through the offense of one, all are dead, dead to God, dead in sin, dwelling in a corruptible, mortal body, shortly to be dissolved and under the sentence of death eternal. For as, by one man's disobedience, all were made sinners, so, by that offense of one, judgment came upon all meant a condemnation. Romans v. 12 and c. 7. In this state we were, even all mankind, when God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, to the end we might not perish, but have everlasting life. In the fullness of time He was made man, another common head of mankind a second general parent and representative, of the whole human race. And as such it was that he bore our griefs, the Lord laying upon him the iniquities of us all. Then was he wounded for our transgressions, and bruised for our iniquities. He made his soul an offering for sin he poured out his blood for the transgressors, he bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that by his stripes we might be healed, and, by that one oblation of himself, once offered, he hath redeemed me, and all mankind having thereby made a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. 8. In consideration of this, that the Son of God hath tasted death for every man, God hath now reconciled the world to Himself, not imputing to them their former trespasses. And thus, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification. So that, for the sake of His well-beloved Son, of what He hath done and suffered for us, God now vouchsafes on one only condition, which Himself also enables us to perform, both to remit the punishment due to our sins, to reinstate us in His favor, and to restore our dead souls to spiritual life, as the earnest of life eternal. 9. This, therefore, is the general ground of the whole doctrine of justification. By the sin of the first Adam who was not only the Father, but likewise the representative, of us all, we all fell short of the favor of God, we all became children of wrath, or, as the Apostle expresses it, judgment came upon all meant a condemnation. Even so, by the sacrifice for sin made by the second Adam, as the representative, of us all, God is so far reconciled to all the world, that he hath given them a new covenant, the plain condition, whereof being once fulfilled, There is no more condemnation for us, but we are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. 2. 1. But what is it to be justified? What is justification? This was the second thing which I proposed to show. And it is evident, from what has been already observed, that it is not the being made actually just and righteous, This is sanctification, which is, indeed, in some degree, the immediate fruit of justification, but, nevertheless, is a distinct gift of God, and of a totally different nature. The one implies what God does for us through His Son, the other, what He works in us by His Spirit. So that, although some rare instances may be found, wherein the term justified or justification is used in so wide a sense as to include sanctification also. Yet, in general use, they are sufficiently distinguished from each other, both by St. Paul and the other inspired writers. 2. Neither is that far-fetched conceit, that justification is the clearing us from accusation, particularly that of Satan, easily provable from any clear text of Holy Rit. In the whole scriptural account of this matter, as above laid down, neither that accuser, nor his accusation appears to be at all taken in it cannot indeed be denied, that he is the accuser of men, emphatically so called. But it does in no wise appear, that the great apostle hath any reference to this, more or less, in all he hath written touching justification, either to the Romans, or the Galatians. 3. It is also far easier to take for granted, than to prove from any clear scripture testimony. That justification is the clearing us from the accusation brought against us by the law, at least if this forced, unnatural way, of speaking mean neither more or less than this, that, whereas we have transgressed the law of God, and thereby deserved the damnation of hell, God does not inflict on those who are justified the punishment which they had deserved. 4 least of all does justification imply that God is deceived in those whom he justifies, that he thinks them to be what, in fact, they are not, that he accounts them to be otherwise than they are. It does by no means imply that God judges concerning us contrary to the real nature of things, that he esteems us better than we really are, or believes us righteous when we are unrighteous. Surely no the judgment of the all-wise God is always according to truth. Neither can it ever consist with his honoring wisdom, to think that I am innocent, to judge that I am righteous or holy, because another is so he can no more, in this manner, confound me with Christ, and with David or Abraham. Let any man to whom God hath given understanding, weigh this without prejudice, and he cannot but perceive, that such a notion of justification is neither reconcilable to reason nor scripture. 5. The plain scriptural notion of justification is pardon, the forgiveness of sins. It is that act of God the Father, hereby, for the sake of the propitiation made by the blood of His Son, He showeth forth His righteousness, or mercy, by the remission of the sins, that are past. This is the easy, natural account of it given by St. Paul, throughout this whole epistle. So he explains it himself, more particularly in this, and in the following chapter. Thus, in the next verses but one to the text, Blessed are they, saith he, whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. To him that is justified or forgiven, God will not impute sin to his condemnation. He will not condemn him on that account, either in this world, or in that which is to come. His sins, all his past sins, in thought, word, and deed, are covered, are blotted out, shall not be remembered or mentioned against him any more than if they had not been. God will not inflict on that sinner what he deserved to suffer, because the Son of his love hath suffered for him. And from the time we are accepted through the Beloved, reconciled to God, through his blood, he loves, and blesses, and watches over us for good, even as if we had never sinned. Indeed the Apostle in one place seems to extend the meaning of the word much farther, where he says, Not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law, shall be justified. Here he appears to refer our justification to the sentence of the great day. And so our Lord himself unquestionably doth, when he says, By thy words thou shalt be justified, proving hereby, that for every idle word men shall speak, they shall give an account in the day of judgment. But perhaps we can hardly produce another instance of St. Paul's using the word in that distant sense. In the general tenor of his writings, it is evident he doth not, and least of all in the text, before us, which undeniably speaks, not of those who have already finished their course, but of those who are now just setting out, just beginning to run the race which is set before them. 3. 1. But this is the third thing which was to be considered, namely, who are they, that are justified? And the Apostle tells us expressly, the ungodly, he, that is, God, justifieth the ungodly, the ungodly of every kind and degree, and none but the ungodly. As they that are righteous need no repentance, so they need no forgiveness. It is only sinners that have any occasion for pardon, it is sin alone which admits of being forgiven. Forgiveness, therefore, has an immediate reference to sin, and, in this respect, to nothing else. It is our unrighteousness to which the pardoning God is merciful, it is our iniquity which he remembereth no more. 2. This seems not to be at all considered by those who so vehemently contend that a man must be sanctified, that is, holy, before he can be justified, especially by such of them as affirm that universal holiness or obedience must precede justification. Unless they mean that justification at the last day, which is wholly out of the present question. So far from it, that the very supposition is not only flatly impossible, for where there is no love of God, there is no holiness. And there is no love of God, but from a sense of His loving us, but also grossly, intrinsically absurd, contradictory to itself. For it is not a saint but a sinner, that is forgiven, and under the notion of a sinner. God justifieth not the godly, but the ungodly, not those that are holy already, but the unholy. Upon what condition He doeth this, will be considered quickly, but whatever it is, it cannot be holiness, to assert this, is to say the Lamb of God takes away only those sins which were taken away before. 3. Does them a good shepherd seek, and save only those that are found already? No, he seeks, and saves that which has lost. He pardons those who need his pardoning mercy. He saves from the guilt of sin, and, at the same time, from the power, sinners of every kind, of every degree, men, who, till then, were altogether ungodly in whom the love of the Father was not, and, consequently, in whom dwelled no good thing, no good or truly Christian temper. But all such, as were evil and abominable, pride, anger, love of the world, the genuine fruits of that carnal mind which is enemy against God. 4. These who are sick, the burden of whose sins is intolerable, are they that need a physician? These who are guilty, who groan under the wrath of God, are they that need to pardon? These who are condemned already, not only by God, but also by their own conscience, as by a thousand witnesses, of all their ungodliness, both in thought, and word, and work, cry aloud for him that justifieth the ungodly, through the redemption, that is in Jesus, the ungodly, and him that worketh not, that worketh not, before he is justified, anything, that is good, that is truly virtuous or holy, but only evil continually. For his heart is necessarily, essentially evil, till the love of God is shed abroad therein. And while the tree is corrupt, so are the fruits, for an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. 5. If it be objected, nay, but a man, before he is justified, may feed the hungry, or clothe the naked, and these are good works, the answer is easy, he may do these, even before he is justified, and these are, in one sense, good works, they are good and profitable to men. But it does not follow, that they are, strictly speaking, good in themselves, or good in the sight of God. All truly good works to use the words of our church, follow after justification, and they are therefore good and acceptable to God in Christ, because they spring out of a true and living faith. By a parity of reason, all works done before justification are not good, in the Christian sense, much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, though from some kind of faith in God they may spring, wink, yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed, and commanded them to be done, we doubt not how strange soever it may appear to some, but they have the nature of sin. 6. Perhaps those who doubt of this have not duly considered the way reason which is he resigned, why no works done before justification can be truly, and properly good? The argument plainly runs thus, no works are good, which are not done as God hath willed, and commanded them to be done. But no works done before justification are done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, therefore, no works done before justification are good. The first proposition is self-evident, and the second, that no works done before justification are done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, will appear equally plain and undeniable, if we only consider God hath willed and commanded that all our works should be done in charity, and agape, in love, in that love to God which produces love to all mankind. But none of our works can be done in this love, while the love of the Father, of God, as our Father, is not in us, and this love cannot be in us till we receive the spirit of adoption, crying in, our hearts, Abba, Father. If, therefore, God doth not justify the ungodly, and him that, in this sense, worketh not, then hath Christ died in vain, then, notwithstanding his death, can no flesh living be justified. 4. 1. But on what terms, then, is he justified who is altogether ungodly, until that time worketh not? On one alone, which is faith, he believeth is him that justifieth the ungodly. And he that believeth is not condemned, yea, he is passed from death unto life. For the righteousness, or mercy, of God is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, whom God hath sent forth for a propitiation, through faith in his blood that he might be just, and consistently with his justice, the justifier, of him which believeth in Jesus therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, without the deeds of the law, without previous obedience, to the moral law, which, indeed, he could not, till now, perform. That it is the moral law, and that alone, which is here intended, appears evidently from the words that follow, do with and make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. What law do we establish by faith? not the ritual law, not the ceremonial law of Moses. In no wise, but the great, unchangeable law of love, the holy love of God, and of our neighbor. 2. Faith in general is a divine, supernatural elegance, evidence, or conviction, of things not seen, not discoverable by our bodily senses, as being either past, future, or spiritual. Justifying faith implies not only a divine evidence or conviction that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, but a sure trust and confidence that Christ died for my sins, that he loved me and gave himself for me and at what time soever a sinner thus believes, be it in early childhood, in the strength of his years, or when he is old and hoary-haired, God justifieth that ungodly one, God, for the sick of his son, pardoneth and absolveth him who had in him. Till then, no good thing repentance, indeed, God had given him before, but that repentance was neither more nor less than a deep sense of the want of all good, and the presence of all evil. And whatever good he hath or doeth from that hour, when he first believes in God through Christ, faith does not find, but bring. This is the fruit of faith. First the tree is good, and then the fruit is good also. 3. I cannot describe the nature of this faith better than in the words of our own church, the only instrument of salvation, whereof justification is one branch, is faith, that is, a sure trust and confidence, that God both hath, and will forgive our sins, that he hath accepted us again into his favor, for the merits of Christ's death and passion. But here we must take heed that we do not halt with God, through an inconstant, wavering faith, Peter, coming to Christ, upon the water because he fainted in faith, was in danger of drowning, so we, if we begin to waver or doubt, it is to be feared that we shall sink as Peter did, not into the water, but into the bottomless pit of hell fire. Second Sermon on the Passion Therefore, have a sure and constant faith, not only that the death of Christ is available for all the world, but that he hath made a full and sufficient sacrifice for thee, a perfect cleansing of vices, so that thou mayest say with the Apostle, he loved thee, and gave himself for thee, For this is to make Christ thine own, and to apply his merits unto thyself. Sermon on the Sacrament, 1st Part 4. By affirming that this faith is the term or condition of justification, I mean, first, that there is no justification without it. He that believeth not is condemned already, and so long, as he believeth not, that condemnation cannot be removed, but the wrath of God abideth on him as there is no other name given under heaven, and that of Jesus of Nazareth, no other merit, whereby a condemned sinner can ever be saved from the guilt of sin, so there is no other way, of obtaining a share in his merit, than by faith in his name. So that as long, as we are without this faith, we are strangers to the covenant of promise, we are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and without God, in the world, Whatsoever virtues, so called, a man may have, I speak of those unto whom the gospel is preached, for what have I to do to judge them, that are without? Whatsoever good works, so accounted, he may do, it profiteth not, he is still a child of wrath, still under the curse, till he believes in Jesus. 5. Faith, therefore, is the necessary condition of justification, yea, and the only necessary condition thereof, this is the second point carefully to be observed, that the very moment God giveth faith, for it is the gift of God to the ungodly that worketh not, that faith is counted to him for righteousness. He hath no righteousness at all, and then to this, not so much as negative righteousness, or innocence. But faith is imputed to him for righteousness, the very moment that he believeth. Not that God, as was observed before, thinketh him to be what he is not. But has he made Christ to be sin for us, that is, treated him as a sinner, punishing him for our sins, so he counteth us righteous, from the time we believe in him, that is, he doth not punish us for our sins, yea, treats us as though we are guiltless and righteous. 6. Surely the difficulty of assenting to this proposition, that faith is the only condition of justification, must arise from not understanding it. We mean thereby thus much, that it is the only thing without which none is justified, the only thing that is immediately, indispensably, absolutely requisite in order to pardon. As, on the one hand, though a man should have everything else without faith, yet he cannot be justified, so, on the other, though he be supposed to want everything else, yet if he hath faith, he cannot but be justified. For suppose a sinner of any kind or degree, in a full sense of his total ungodliness, of his utter inability to think, speak, or do good, and his absolute meekness for hellfire. Suppose, I say, the sinner, helpless and hopeless, casts himself wholly on the mercy of God in Christ, which indeed he cannot do. But by the grace of God, who can doubt, but he is forgiven in that moment? Who will affirm, that any more is indispensably required before that sinner can be justified? Now, if there ever was one such instance from the beginning of the world, and have there not been, and are there not, ten thousand times ten thousand. It plainly follows, that faith is, in the above sense, the sole condition of justification. 7. It does not become poor, guilty, sinful worms, who receive whatsoever blessings they enjoy, from the least drop of water that cools our tongue, to the immense riches of glory in eternity, of grace, of mere favor, and not of debt, to ask of God the reasons of his conduct. It is not meet for us to call him in question, who giveth account to none of his ways, to demand, Why didst thou make faith a condition, the only condition, of justification? Wherefore didst thou decree, He that believeth, and he only, shall be saved. This is the very point on which St. Paul so strongly insists in the ninth chapter of this epistle, viz, that the terms of pardon and acceptance must depend, not on us, but on him, that calleth us, that there is no unrighteousness with God, in fixing his own terms, not according to ours, but his own good pleasure, who may justly say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, namely, on him, who believeth in Jesus. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, to choose the condition on which he shall find acceptance, but of God, that showeth mercy, that accepteth none at all, but of his own free love, his unmerited goodness. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, viz, on those who believe on the Son, of his love, and whom he will. That is, those who believe not, he hardeneth, leaves at last to the hardness of their hearts. 8. One reason, however, we may humbly conceive, of God's fixing this condition of justification, if thou believest in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved, was to hide pride from man. Pride had already destroyed the very angels of God, had cast down a third part of the stars of heaven. It was likewise in great measure owing to this, when the tempter said, Ye shall be as gods, that Adam fell from his own steadfastness, and brought sin and death into the world. It was therefore an instance of wisdom worthy of God, to appoint such a condition of reconciliation for him and all his posterity as might effectually humble, might abase them to the dust. And such is faith. It is peculiarly fitted for the sent, for he that commit unto God, by this faith, must fix his eye singly on his own wickedness, on his guilt and helplessness, without having the least regard to any supposed good in himself, to any virtue or righteousness whatsoever. He must come as a mere sinner, inwardly, and outwardly, self-destroyed and self-condemned, bringing nothing to God but ungodliness only, pleading nothing of his own but sin and misery. Thus it is, and thus alone, when his mouth is stopped, and he stands utterly guilty before God, that he can look unto Jesus, as the whole and sole propitiation, for his sins. Thus only can he be found in him, and receive the righteousness which is of God by faith. 9. O ungodly one, who hearest or readest these words. O vile, helpless, miserable sinner. I charge thee before God, the judge, of all, go straight unto him, with all thy ungodliness. Take heed thou destroy not thy own soul, by pleading by righteousness, more or less. Go as altogether ungodly, guilty, lost, destroyed, deserving, and dropping into hell, and thou shalt then find favor in his sight, and know that he justifieth the ungodly. As such thou shalt be brought unto the blood of sprinkling, as an undone, helpless, damned sinner. Us look unto Jesus. There is the Lamb of God, who taketh away thy sins. Plead thou no works, no righteousness of thine own. No humility, contrition, sincerity. In no wise. That were, in very deed, to deny the Lord, that bought thee. No, plead thou, singly, the blood of the covenant, the ransom paid for thy proud, stubborn. Sinful soul. Who art thou, that now seest and feelest both thine inward and outward ungodliness? Thou art the man. I want thee for my Lord. I challenge thee for a child of God by faith. The Lord hath need of thee. Thou who feelest thou art just fit for hell, art just fit to advance his glory, the glory of his free grace, justifying the ungodly and him that worketh not. O come quickly! Believe in the Lord Jesus, and thou even now are to reconciled to god